Hi, everybody. It's Richard Zwicky of The Green Peak. And joining us today, we have Corey Wagner, who's the CEO of Higher Yields Consulting out of Colorado. Welcome aboard, Corey. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me. So, Corey, you've been around the industry for a few years. You you start off in Colorado uh, a while back, quite, you know, back in 2010, I think it was, so quite early into the industry, and saw a lot of changes there, and obviously the changes through the path to legalization uh, on the state level and a lot of what's happened. And lately, you've taken a strong interest into what's going on in Europe and how it compares to the US. W- what drove that uh, interest and perspective? Well, I actually started in uh, 2008 in, in Northern California, um, back in the real wild, wild west days of cannabis. And uh, in 2010, one of the main reasons I came to Colorado is I saw um, people really working together at the government level to, to make a, a good program and yep. to work together to figure out you know, how to keep federal intervention out, um, you know, keep the program safe, think about the end consumer. Um, so it really kind of drove me here because I saw this as a place that uh, would likely be kind of the, uh, the template for how other states and other countries would eventually legalize. And so, um, you know, over the last like seven or eight years, we've been taking on a lot more international projects and all of them very different, you know, in different parts of the world. Um, and it's been really interesting to see them try to develop these programs with a lot of these programs being federally illegal versus what we have here in, in the United States, where it's still federally illegal um, and seeing them kind of cut their teeth on trying to work together, you know, in, in the industry and being able to import and export products and meets uh, specific guidelines. So we saw a real opportunity to help with uh, some of the infrastructure development, some of the regulatory developments, of some of these countries and uh, have had a lot of success uh, in the last mm-hmm. few years and um, have really enjoyed our work. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting you mentioned about the lessons learned and how one jurisdiction will learn from the next. And while that's really true, we also are looking at lots of islands of uh, pathways. I know in in Latin America, the countries have all gone different paths, somewhat following a model, but such huge differences that it really is almost completely different industry in each country. Whereas in Europe, you know, everybody still waits for journey to take a lead uh, for most of it. And of course, the UK is off on their own again on a, in a different way. How do you, you know, when you look at it, that all has to come together under one framework eventually. And that framework also is going to affect the U.S. because the U.S. isn't an island unto itself in any legalized industry internationally. How do you look at it uh, changing over the while? Because if the rest of the world goes one way and the U.S. continues going a different direction, somebody loses out over time. Yeah, Absolutely. The way that the U.S. has legalized this at the state level, um, you know, it's it, it's been interesting to see it evolve and how these different programs look. You have the Oklahoma's where it's very simple, mm-hmm. hardly any barriers to getting a license. And that market was flooded uh, within, you know, about two years. Um, yep. You look at New York and Florida where, you know, where they started like you know, around 2015 with a very limited uh, licensing and, and what that meant for you know big money to be able to come into the industry. Uh, and then you look at some of these states like Michigan and Massachusetts, where there's a little bit more of a vetting process. It's not as easy as in Oklahoma, but it's not as limited as um, as a uh, as a Florida or a New York was um, initially. And so when we see this happening, we're noticing that none of these states are really working together. Um, what's right. always interesting, though, is when we go to the regulations, um, sometimes when we're reviewing regulations for one state, we've actually caught them stealing information and forgetting to replace the the new the old states uh regulations hey there's no trademarks there's no trademark on legal documents and learning from (laughs) the way somebody did something right isn't necessarily a bad thing right 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's kind of like they, you know, they don't want to openly work together on a lot of things. And um, whereas in Europe, you know, just last week we saw, uh, you know, it was Germany, Malta, Netherlands and Luxembourg mm-hmm. meeting to, to kind of discuss, you know, the changes in the landscape and how they can work together to, to make something that, um, you know, benefits everybody and not just from an economic standpoint, not just from a health standpoint, but as many aspects as, as possible to make sure that everybody in the European Union um, or those willing, um, you know, can really brief the benefits of, of being a part of it. And I think it's a really interesting approach. And some of the things that we've seen in uh, some of the other uh, countries with their pilot programs um, and how they've you know, really kind of tested the market to see right. you know, what is public reaction. But also, you know, do we need 100 licenses? Do we need five licenses? You know, what what helps these stores maintain? Because in these very saturated markets, uh, becomes very difficult, you know, to survive, and in these very limited markets, it's, it's very difficult to get involved. Yeah, and it's going to be, you know, it's a phase, right? I mean, right now, it's because of the lack of federal legalization and the state by state nature of the business. There's going to be lots of independence, but the day federal legalization happens, there's going to be not just consolidation, but there's going to be waves of net retailers become national in the market. And one of the things that that brings forward, of course, and you kind of started touching upon it when you talked about the four country uh, discussions in, in Europe, is the transportation of cannabis across borders. And, you know, in, in the US, of course, it's not federally legal, but there's lots of stories about product from certain states like Oklahoma being found and Oregon being found in many others. Um, you know, it's a very transportable product. And that issue of transportation, one is a, something that needs to be regulated if in a, in a national system, but also in places where there aren't hard border crossings, it's a difficult one to enforce or deal with without a good framework. What are you hearing about that? Because that has to be a concern. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it, it boils down to a lot more than just the criminal side. It's also the product that makes it to market, you know, and where, where it's coming from. Yeah. Right. Um, well, it's and the whole it, provenance, we, right? And tracking. Patients need to know and consumers need to know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so seeing, you know, countries starting to work together and, you know, seeing the the kind of snowball effect we saw here in the U.S. And we've been saying that same thing since about you know, 2005 uh, in Europe as well, as they've been legalizing medical. Um, nobody's legalized adult use, but, you know, even Spain, it's it's not like documented criminalized and a lot of places have decriminalized it um but as we see people continue to accept it and that momentum moving forward um i just feel that a lot of these countries if they're approaching this with open minds which it seems like some of them are Mm -hmm. it's going to actually result in a much better program for everyone involved um because you know similar to what we see in colorado where you can you know i think you can carry two ounces you know but if you go to illinois maybe it's seven grams um, you know, if you're a medical patient, then it's this, if it's recreational, then it's that. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's so great. Like, I feel like if I go anywhere in the United States, I got to kind of study up before I get there to, to make sure I, I know what I can buy and what I can hold and, you know, what I can and cannot do. Um, so to see the EU and countries in the EU starting to work in that way um, is just, to me, it's, it's really impressive. And, and I wish that uh, the United States and, um, you know, we've seen a little bit of of that, you know, over on the West Coast between California, Washington, and uh, Oregon. Um, but, you know, without the federal government really supporting it or being in favor of it, you know, it's still going to continue to be this this kind of political opportunity for people to, to use to their benefit. 
There absolutely is a, you know, there is an opportunity in that. And, you know, that's that's not going away soon because as much as we all would like to see federal legalization happen sooner rather than later, it's not likely with everything else that's going on that is going to happen in this, you know, definitely before November and probably not this term. And even once it occurs, it's still 18 months to two years for the regulatory framework to be in place that governs how it should all uh, interoperate. But we have a much more progressive attitude in, you know, across more jurisdictions about how to use medical cannabis than we have a framework to support us actually using it. What do you think is, um, you know, is different about the way Europe's going about it than the U.S. that's making it, you know, where they started behind us, uh, they're rapidly passing. And wh- what do you think is different? Is it a social thing, a cultural thing, or is it just the political recognition of reality? I think a lot of it's just political recognition of reality. Um, the amount of consumers over the last 10 years and people who've more openly consumed and, you know, the data between Canada and the United States and other countries that have legalized, I mean, mm-hmm. cannabis is here. And so I, I think for them, you know, they've they can keep fighting it, which they know it's a battle they're going to lose, or they can embrace it, um, which is a battle that you know, they can absolutely win um, and create something that is sustainable, you know, that, that helps out, has, has a good economic impact on the businesses that are getting in and investors and the time and resources to go into it, um, but also creates a very high level product for the consumers. And I think for the EU, it's also beneficial to them because you know, Canada's had cannabis legalized for a long time, Colorado, California. Technology and the industry as a whole have come so far in the last 10 years as far as what product makes it to the end consumers and how clean that product is compared to, you know, what we used to purchase back in in 2010, 2012. Um, So them being able to really kind of see and and let it play out here in the United States and and kind of learn from some of the the good things and some of the bad things and, um, you know, really understand the impact that cannabis has outside of just growing and selling a plant. But the health benefits of it, uh, the job creation of it, um, you know, just, I mean, even drinking, you know, the, the fall off we've seen here in the United States since cannabis has, has kind of picked up uh, some traction in legalization, we've started to see drinking and DUI start to fall off in states. Yep. So, you know, th- those are all like, if, if you're approaching this with an open mind, um, I mean, those are huge stats. Th- those are huge things. Those take in consideration public health and safety, um, not just other consumers, but, you know, random people in in society it's it the impact is actually so much broader than just the you know the consumer it is uh you know you mentioned the drop in drunk driving rates those are lives saved and there's a drop in violent crime uh, for you know people who are no longer inebriated or not uh going out and committing those crimes the the social changes that and the impacts are so positive on how people around us are affected. It's uh, its incredible. But we do need to take a short break, Corey. We'll be back in a moment with Corey Wagner with uh, Higher Yield Consulting. I'm Richard Zwicky on The Green Peak. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. And we're back on The Green Peak with Corey Wagner from Higher Yields Consulting. And Corey, you know, as I was thinking about your experience in the market and with higher yield, you've also worked to help existing operations expand and have built uh, operations from ground up. One of the things that I'm always um, surprised by is who and when do customers actually look at future-proofing their business 
there's such tremendous growth opportunities and revenue growth opportunities today. But when you look at the future and the rest of the world preparing for international integration, how often and how do you approach customers who are in the U.S. about future-proofing from a compliance perspective, from a production perspective, from certification perspective? You know, it all comes into play. Yeah, absolutely, it does. Uh, you know, a lot of our work, uh, a lot of times we're looking at federal re- regulations for guidance on how we should do things. Um, we take a very like proactive rather than reactive approach uh, to, to legalization, to compliance, um, to all of those things to make sure that our clients are thinking ahead rather than having to react in the moment. Um, so a lot of what we do, you know, in, in cannabis and hemp is, is really try to follow as many federal guidelines as possible to give us guidance on, you know, how we should operate these businesses or how uh, traditionally these types of businesses outside of just cannabis um, operate at the federal level. As far as legalizing here in the United States, I think that when it does legalize, I, I think long term, I don't know that a lot of cannabis gets grown in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're seeing these huge drop-offs in, in California and Oregon and Washington and Colorado, uh, Oklahoma, and, you know, to produce this stuff, it, it's really, I mean, it's expensive to build these facilities out and get off the ground, but it's not a very expensive product given the amount of markup that there is. And what that's always told us is like, over time, this is going to mature and this is going to change, especially as more consumers come on. And over time, um, it becomes a commodity where there will be, of course, the craft producers who are producing particular, you know, strains and varietals and flavors and have a brand, but the mass market is going to be commoditized. Yeah, absolutely. So once it legally, you know, once once it's decriminalized or legal in the United States, when when export and imports start happening here, you know, the, I think it all changes, right? And, and we're seeing that on a bigger level with what's going on. Um, outside of the United States now. Um, but a lot of our clients, you know, they always ask, hey, what's going on with, with federal legalization? What, what does federal legalization look like versus decriminalization? Um, and how do we, you know, at least start thinking about those things and what that might look like? And a lot of times, uh, you know, some of our clients who are in kind of our design build aspects or, or vertical that, that we offer, uh, a lot of times we're thinking ahead, you know, we're thinking in a multi-phase build out. So they're going to start with 10,000 square foot, but they're going to build, they're going to have a 50,000 square foot building. So they're always kind of thinking in terms of that growth um, right. and making sure they have, it's, it's, it's better to have it, not need it than need it, not have it um, is generally you know, what we tell people, depending on the market they're getting into. Uh, but also some of these markets, you know, I think if you're trying to ride the wave of federal legalization or decriminalization, uh, where we can take these things across borders, getting in later is going to be to your benefit um, because like right now, you know, five, 10,000 square foot grow can't really, can't, can't really make it work, you know, here in Colorado. But once federal legalization happens, um, you know, price is going to go up, product's going to be difficult to find. And, you know, those guys are going to be able to kind of ride that wave for a few days. Whereas right now, you know, we're, like you said, you know, we're, we're probably three years, four years from, from having anything that, um, you know, would allow us to do that. So we certainly have our finger on the pulse all the time. Um, for us, you know, we watch other federal governments rather than ours when it comes to cannabis, just because we haven't seen, uh, we've seen some movement, obviously, you know, Safe Bank Act, uh, to see that be able to move at least forward in some ways was, was really exciting. Uh-huh. Um, but also, you know, we're, we're still here, you know, we're, we're still waiting to see what happens next. We're still in purgatory. With, yeah. 
You know, you just said something interesting there where when legalization happens, you look at prices going up and supply issues coming into play. But, you know, I look at it in terms of um, when it happens, also the international markets have access to the U.S. And there's a lot of supply ready to go around the world and a lot of production capacity. And one of the challenges that happened has happened is, while production capacity has been built, um, the ability to move it to market has been heavily restricted. So companies are sitting on large inventories waiting to move them. And they can turn them to distillate, they can turn them to isolate, they can do all sorts of things to extend their life for a long time. How do you see that not affecting the U.S. or what's going to keep that different for the U.S. producers? We don't really know yet, um, but there are other countries, you know, Mexico, they've, they've had a cannabis program for about three or four years now. Um, it hasn't really gotten off the ground. They haven't done anything with it. They won't allow import, export. Um, so I don't know if the U.S., you know, when, when that day comes, if that's the first thing they do, because I think a lot of the sell of legalizing cannabis is job creation. And, you know, what, what I think one of the big things we learned about COVID um, is, you know, while I'm a huge believer in global trade, you still need to be able to sustain, you know, locally. And so I think that, um, you know, in those early years, it's probably, there's probably not a lot of product being imported into uh, the United States. But again, I, I could be wrong. We don't, we don't know. And we none won't us, know for a little while. None of us have a crystal ball. So it's always tough to predict. It's just... Uh, it's interesting from the economics perspective how to plan for that as well, because that's where there's going to be, a, I think, a bifurcation in the market between the commoditization and the premium product. And in the U.S., the premium product can be produced locally, um, whereas the commoditization product, you know, it's it's hard to compete with producers who are below ten cents a gram. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be interesting to see how consumers react to, um, you know, shipping flour from around the world has its challenges you know distillate isolate crude oils those things are a little bit easier to ship Uh um but you know still a large amount of consumers consume specifically flour so i think that you know may kind of weigh in on what ends up happening um you know what those prices look like oh absolutely i mean flour uh most of the major banks and analysts were predicting that um flour would no longer be the primary mode of uh consumption by early to mid 2022 and it's still hugely outpaces everything else and you know it's not just covid that slowed that down it's the what the consumer preference is yeah um you know with regards to that though and the the consumer preference when you when you go back and towards it and planning you know companies that are approaching you um with regards to improving their business be it the design or the cultivation or other areas um you know a lot of times people look at cultivation design and optimization but the reality is there's a lot of other areas that can benefit from uh a good overview where are you seeing the biggest demand today for companies looking to improve their their businesses and what do you see companies overlook yeah I, i think that you know the last few years has just been like this this acquisition 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 um these big companies just acquiring anything and everything they can right and really overvaluing and not making good predictions of what these markets were going to look like and how quickly they'd be able to grow sure and that's where i think we're starting to see um and even as they've saturated certain things some of these smaller providers uh starting to go under and 
I think that it's it's slowly but surely becoming a game of who can be the most efficient mm-hmm. and who has the best branding. Right. Um, you know, a lot of these big operators, it still kind of boggles my mind that they have, you know, 20 different names of stores in, in different places rather than just branding them all together and, you know, creating that awareness and consolidating those marketing expenses. Um, but I think a lot of them aren't worried about that, right? A lot of them have been worried about, you know, revenue and revenue mm-hmm. acquisition and number of licenses and, and market shares. But now that the market's starting to mature, um, they really have to start thinking a lot differently of how do we, how do we maintain, how do we survive? How do we become more efficient? How do we stand out of the market? Um, and that, you know, that, that comes down to good organizational structure, you know, I mean, really like kind of foundational business practices uh, that we see in other industries starting to kind of make their way into cannabis at a bigger level. You know, a lot of the bigger companies we, we work with, we see a lot of hierarchy and organizational issues of, you know, who's in charge and who's doing this and, who's capable, who's competent, who's not. Um, and, you know, a lot of them kind of take that mentality of just just throw people at it, you know, throw throw more people right, at it. Right, throw more bodies well, at it as opposed to figuring out the root problem. Yeah, and and I think those days, and, and they've been able to, you know, because these margins have been so crazy and these valuations right. have been so much. Um, it's really allowed them an opportunity to, you know, kind of figure things out. But I, I think in the next couple of years, we're going to start to see some of these bigger guys uh, start to fall. Um, or at least start rethinking, you know, what their growth strategies are and, and maybe even liquidating some of their less valuable assets. Yeah. And I see, you know, as any of the states change over their positions, um, the verticalization of certain in certain states is is to that state's detriment when it becomes competitive with other states as well, because you can't be an expert at everything. You need to focus on the areas you're really exceptional at. And let others do the other areas. And when you have everything verticalized, you're creating natural inefficiencies, which is a challenge. Do you do you run into that a lot in terms of the planning perspective of the businesses? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's always it always costs twice as much, takes twice as long, and you know they end up making half as much as as they thought they would on it. Um, and a lot of it just comes back to poor planning. You know, a big thing we say at Higher Yields is you know we need to slow down to go fast. And yep. what we really mean by that is like, hey, before we dive headfirst into this, let's let's understand it. You know, let's 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 start talking to people. Let's start bringing together a real plan and have a documented plan and something um, that we can hold ourselves accountable and responsible to, and identify roles, responsibilities, and milestones, and, and KPIs, and, and those sort of things. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, and. I feel like a lot of the bigger operators, they kind of have it figured out, you know, if, if they're vertically mm-hmm. integrated, they, they have people who come in who, you know, this industry, again, it's, it's changed a lot in the last 10 or 12 years. The, the amount of experience that there is in the industry didn't exist 10 years That's ago. Right. You know, everybody was, yep. everybody's doing this in their basement in their backyard. Well, and people from other industries have flooded the marketplace, bringing in expertise, be it, you know, from horticulturalists to people who are working in labs to business operators. It's, you know, there's lots of knowledge and experience everywhere else that's coming into the industry as well, because it's a plant, it's a specialized plant, but at the end of the day, it's a plant that's within a business and business holds always certain fundamental tenets and rules. Yeah. Yeah, and we've, you know, as as an organization, we've kind of grown with that mentality of it's about half of our team is from cannabis, about half of our team had zero experience in cannabis, but was very experienced um, in business or, you know, kind of corporate America. And, you know, what we've seen with these large organizations that are run by kind of the corporate America, the people don't have much under 
a, a good understanding of the industry, much culture from the industry. Um, they try to replicate business models that aren't really replicable in right. in cannabis. Um, but also, you know, when when we're just dealing with cannabis people, they're they're from a startup industry, yeah. And so sometimes it's hard for them to like kind of pick their head up and, and think of a, a bigger picture, you know, and how we position. And I feel like the corporate side really brings that in because they kind of come in and think about it a little bit too big for where this industry is now, because this industry, you know, while, you know, California has been 96 and, and Colorado, you know, we've, we've had it for a while, but it's still a new industry. It's still early. Yep. And, um, you know, to, it's, it's hard to make predict predictions. We do a lot of financial modeling, performance modeling and things like that. And, you know, after three years, it's really hard to say what's going to happen. Absolutely. Know? Absolutely. And that, let's come back to that after we have to take another short break. We'll be back with Corey Wagner from Higher Yields Consulting. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. And we're back with Corey Wagner from Higher Yields Consulting. And Corey, you know, one of the things you mentioned just before we took the break was the size of your team and the mix you try and bring. And that a lot of, you know, about half your team is from outside the cannabis industry. How big is the team and what are the areas of specialization that people really want to approach you about? You know, that of course, the cannabis experts are one thing, but the non-cannabis experts are bringing to the table that are helping the businesses today. Yeah. So our, our team's comprised, there's about 10 people who really make it, you know, go around. Right. Um, but we have, uh, you know, kind of de- depending on the amount of projects we have or what types of projects, we generally have probably 25 to 35 contractors that we're working with, uh, whether they be here domestically or internationally. Right. Um, and so of that team, you know, and, and where they really kind of bring in those, those kind of bigger picture ideas. I, I think, you know, for us, we've, we've had individuals jumped on uh, a couple years ago and came from telecom and he's done a great job of kind of like helping form some direction and develop out products in a way that's a little bit more standardized with, with what he's seen in, um, in bigger industries that have continued to evolve. Right. And for us being a professional service company and the way that we operate kind of throughout the value chain and supply chain, everything we do for clients is ends up being very customized. Right. Um, and so, you know, developing proposals can be really, it can take a lot of time. It does um, take a as, lot of time. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, but what we've been able to do is like, you know, really understand and listen to the market um, and take that feedback and continue to improve on those products. So they're a little bit more on point every time that, that we talk with a new client because we know exactly what they need. You know, we know right. what they need. And, and I was an operator myself for years and uh, learned a lot of hard lessons, you know, like everybody did in the early years. Yep. Um, and a lot of those lessons, you know, I've been able to help people save time and save money. But um, as the industry gets more regulated and, and estates change um, and, you know, clients like they, they all have something different. Some have property, some have money, some have experience, some don't have any or you yeah. know, have one of them. Right. Um, so, you know, we're, we're always kind of working in that environment of, you know, how do we, how do we help our clients put themselves in the best possible op- opportunity and how do we support them around that? And the areas we generally operate in is, is really our four verticals. Um, and the first one being startup services, where we're doing a lot of that pre-planning preparation, um, working through feasibility studies to understand budgets, timelines, resources, markets, um, strengths and weaknesses of the client. Uh, We do a lot of business planning to to help raise capital, um, a lot of competitive and non-competitive application writing because 
you know, the paperwork side of this industry is, is difficult too. And it can slow you down or it can yeah. cause you a lot of problems if it's it not can. done right. Yeah. And yeah, one, yeah. one bad mistake and you're out, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I see. I see a lot of the same issues in the customers, you know, my clients that I speak to and engage with over time, um, in terms of, you know, really a great overview and assessment to understand. And sometimes it's to reset or just to calibrate, so you know what to optimize. Both they and you or everybody's on the same page because a lot of times people know what needs to be done. It's just a matter of how to get there. Um, how long are the engagements you work with? You know, are you do you go in and do short strategic reviews with customers or do you look at, you know, it's a six, 12 month and then an ongoing retainer? Yeah. So similar to our, you know, kind of how we draft up our programs with, with each client, um, you know, some are very small. We, we do a lot of work with like safe Harbor banking solutions um, where we go in and audit the businesses on behalf of the state regulators. Right. Um, a lot of times, you know, that's two hours on site, taking a whole bunch of pictures, asking a lot of questions and, uh, you know, providing a report. Um, all the way up to, you know, very large developments. Um, mm -hmm. We just finished up uh, designing a 50,000 square foot cultivation manufacturing extraction lab uh, in New York. We're, we're working on uh, 20,000 square foot uh, cultivation and a 10,000 square foot manufacturing extraction lab in, in Australia. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and those obviously those those projects take a little bit longer. Um and it, it, so it just kind of depends, you know, a lot of it depends on, you know, where the client wants to get to, you know, what, what their budget is, what market they're getting into. Um, you know, we, we obviously love to have longer engagements with clients because it really allows us to, to be there early and kind of hold their hand throughout, you know, and jump in when we need to, to, to give advice based on our experience. Um, but yeah, so, some of our uh, engagements are a few hours and some of our engagements are two, three years at a time. Yeah, I personally find those longer ones are great value for everybody because over time you gain additional perspective on the business that otherwise you're having to try and learn fresh with each one. And it's the nuances that can sometimes make all the difference. Corey, for people who want to contact you and learn more about high yields or how you can help them, how should they get in touch? Uh, definitely go to our website, www.higheryieldsconsulting.com. Um, you can reach out. We have a 800 number too. It's 844-HIGH-YIELD, H-I-Y-I-E-L-D. Um, and you can always email us at info at higheryieldsconsulting.com as well. Fantastic. Well, Corey, thanks for joining us on the Green Peak this week. It's been a pleasure. And yeah, it's thanks been for having quite me. informative. And we'll be back again with everybody next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Richard Zwicky on the Green Peak. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.